Stay tuned now for Citizen U. Good morning, Mari. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Citizen U, a forum for exploring in-depth local government and related issues to increase your civic literacy, and with that, your ability to be an effective participant in local democracy. I am your host, Mari Roden. Speaking of being an effective participant in democracy, I want to remind everyone that today is election day. Remember to vote. I'm going to give you a few facts about voting in Mendocino County, and then we'll go on with today's topic. There is in-person polling, uh, voting at polling stations throughout the county today. If you need assistance um, to get to a polling station or question about where your local polling station is, you can call the elections office, 234-6819. If you're mailing your uh, ballot in today, make sure that it gets postmarked and it does not need a stamp. If you're dropping it off in a, uh, a drop box, it needs to be dropped off by 8 p.m. So I just want to remind everyone, today's the, the election, the, the recall election, and to please vote. Today we're going to discuss the Hopkins fire, which broke out two days ago in Calpella on Sunday afternoon. It broke out specifically at 2.15 p.m. It was a very small fire, less than one acre, and then it quickly spread. Uh, the last I heard, it was 275 acres. It might be bigger now. We're going to find out. But as of 7 a.m. this morning, it was 30% contained. Today, we're speaking with two emergency response officials and a prevention expert about this fire, and we're going to get questions answered that may not have been addressed in one of the briefings, and we'll have time to go in depth. We'll also be taking calls from listeners starting at 9.30. The number to call is 895-2448. My guests this morning are Ukiah Valley Fire District Chief Doug Hutchins Cal and CAL FIRE Mendocino Unit Chief George Gonzalez, as well as Scott Craddy, the Executive Director of the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council. I attempted to reach the uh, Chief Robinson from the Redwood Valley Calpella Fire District, but was in it, unable to reach anyone there. So let's start out by getting a summary. Um, which chief would that be, Chief Gonzalez, to do that? Sounds good. Thank you for uh, having me today. My name is George Gonzalez, Unit Chief for Cal Fire Mendocino. Uh, we had a fire that broke out at approximately 2.15 uh, on Sunday in the Redwood Valley Capel area. The fire initially under an acre and then uh, based on the local conditions grew to, uh, last check we had was approximately 257 acres. Um, it was a critical rate of spread. Uh, it had uh, wind on it, which pushed it even um, more quickly. Uh, structures were consumed. Um, heavy um, uh, spotting occurred, which means that the actual fire was uh, spotting well ahead of the main body of fire. 
So as resources would get to the main body of fire, it would spot well ahead of them. At one point, there was even a spot in the dry lake bed from Lake Mendocino that we had to take action on via helicopters. Um, doesn't happen very often, but those are the current conditions of, of California and specifically Mendocino County. In total, we had just uh, under 300 firefighters assigned to the incident, numerous uh, air and ground resources, and right now we're dealing with the aftermath, which is unfortunate of structure loss. However, uh, we have no injuries reported and, more importantly, no fatalities reported. So overall, it has been a success, and I think the success is based upon uh, everything that everybody's been doing, the awareness, the culture, the prevention efforts, um, everybody is very in tuned with California fire season, specifically Mendocino County is very in tune because we've had the most large and damaging fires in California history and Mendocino County history right here in Mendocino County. 2017, we had the worst modern disaster in the county history, which was the 17th siege. Uh, just 10 months later, we had the first mega fire in California, which was uh, just over 450,000 acres. And then last year in 2020, we had the first giga fire, which was just over a million acres. And these are all indicators. These happen right here in our backyard. So everybody has been extremely vigilant. The residences, the people of Mendocino County are um, very aware of the potential. And I think that aided to the success of people getting out uh, out of the way of the fire on Sunday and allowing firefighters to get in there to do their job. I'd like to focus in on one particular thing that you mentioned about this fire yesterday, that it uh, had a critical rate of speed. And I, I guess that's a technical term. Um, could you describe, define that term? What does it, yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, a great question. Essentially, there's four rates of, of speed for fire, slow, moderate, dangerous, and critical. And dangerous and critical rates of spread, you don't hear that often, you don't see that often. We've been seeing that lately, the past few years, but this fire in Redwood Valley, right in our backyard, right in the central part of our county, experienced a critical rate of fire. And that is a fire that is moving at greater than three miles an hour, which doesn't sound like much, but when you envision a wall of fire that can travel three miles in an hour, that's a significant fire. And although this was much smaller in acreage, it was burning at that rate of spread. In fact, this fire burned a little bit faster than that because it started to spot ahead of itself. It was creating its own weather pattern. It was throwing spots well ahead of this um, main body of fire, which created new fires. Can we talk a little bit about the response, the initial response, how that happened? We know, you know, zeroing in on where the call for the fire came from. And could um, I, I'm not sure, maybe uh, Chief Hutchinson would be the person because I think local uh, local departments came initially and then it was a CAL FIRE response. Yeah, it was a joint response initially, although the fire did was initially reported as a what we call an LRA or local responsibility area fire, just because of where it was located. I mean, the, the command center at Howard Forest, when they receive an address, they'll basically geolocate where that position is and de decide which jurisdictions are going to respond. 
So based on its location, the initial response was Redwood Valley Calpella because it's in their fire district, but it's also in an auto aid zone with the Ukiah Valley Fire Authority. So we had units responding right away, as did CAL FIRE. And then once they saw you know, what they had and, and witnessed the rates of spread that Chief Gonzalez was talking about and realized that it was quickly going to spread into the state responsibility area, it was then upgraded to a full wildland response, which triggered all of the you know, bells and whistles that CAL FIRE can bring with the aircraft and dozers and crews and things like that. So there wasn't really much of a delay in upgrading it. I'm not even sure how many units were really on scene before that call was made. I know it was made very early on. So, you know, the crews did the best they could with what they had until they can get resources in. You know, one of the things, you know, we know right now in, in our county and most counties, especially in Northern California, is everybody's kind of at a resource drawdown. A lot of agencies have crews out on other fires. Uh, you know, we've got people covering other stations and things like that. So sometimes that can slow the massive response that we're no, used to getting if we're the only game in town. But I think we got enough resources as fast as we could. Um, you know, I want to echo what Chief Gonzalez said. I think it's a success that given that terrain, given the fact that that fire was moving at the rate it was, the roads and stuff in the area, the fact that there were no injuries and were no fatalities is an amazing thing, whether to civilians or firefighters. Mm -hmm. What are the biggest challenges uh, facing the, um, you know, the work of firefighters today in containing the fire? So, so far, it's been Mother Nature, without a doubt. Yesterday, we had uh, the normal wind pattern through there from 1 o'clock in the afternoon through 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's usually about a 10-mile-an-hour wind uh, from the west, pushing it towards the east. Today, Mother Nature gives us triple-digit temperatures. Um, again, uh, adding that heat element to suppression personnel, emergency response personnel. On the plus side, it does allow the fuels, the unburnt fuels to start producing smoke, which gives us a visual indicator of, you know, where to work, so on and so forth. Um, but it does create stress in the trees because they've been burnt. And now today, once they get the heat, they're going to try to suck moisture into the system. So today we'll see a lot of trees falling. Uh, power lines are still an issue. And the sheer magnitude of the incident, we're looking at over 250 acres, and we're going to mop it up 110% to provide that blanket of safety for every civilian uh, from the point when we release the incident back to, to the citizens. We want, it, we want to give it back as safe as we can, which is no smokes, no uh, pollutants, no things like that in the air, but we're still not there. It's just a large incident. Um, there was vehicles, structures that were consumed, so it's a lot of mop-up. Uh, I'm looking at a map that was uh, displayed this morning uh, at the at the summary of of the incident, and uh, I wish I could show it to listeners, but I'll try to describe a little bit of it. It's um, it, it shows an area from Lake Men the northern part of Lake Mendocino, the, well, the northwestern, and the containment areas are along the eastern side of where the Lake Mendocino is, and then on the west side. Um, looks like uh, the Russian on the Russian River side, but the north and the south parts of this perimeter are are the uncontained areas. And I wondered if you could talk about what it means to contain a fire or for a fire to be thirty percent contained. What what about the other seventy percent? So could you talk about what that means? Great question, and that's always um, a question at any fire. 
Um, essentially, the containment value is the stopped fire spread at the very perimeter of the fire. So at the very outer edges. And that's where you get your uh, containment value from, whether it's 5 or 10 or 15% or 100%. We're, we're speaking on the very outer edge of the incident. And when we that, that's not to be confused with controlled. Controlled is when we actually go interior from the perimeter and mop up 100% of the fire. So you could still have good containment. Uh, for example, a 50% uh, containment on an incident, and there's still hot spots uh, throughout the fire and or uh, a perimeter that's still hot that has not been 100% uh, suppressed. So is the fire spreading on the north and south ends of this perimeter? I'm glad because you asked that question. It's absolutely not spreading. We have people, dozers, crews, roads put in. It's just a matter of today being able to work in and amongst the power lines, um, the people, and starting to go interior. After today, we're going to start to see uh, a lot more containment values and a lot more of uh, black marks on the map that you're looking at. Yeah, the black marks being the areas that are contained. Contained, correct. But if it's not spreading, how come you're not defining it as contained? We can't give that until mm -hmm. we're physically there, until we physically put water on it, until we physically moved every uh, piece of soil so there's no chance of the fire spreading again. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, if you're just joining us, this is uh, Citizen U. We generally explore local government-related issues, but uh, this morning we're, we're talking about the Hopkins fire in Calpella and Redwood Valley. Well, Calpella, I should say. And I have um, two fire chiefs here this morning, the Ukiah Valley Fire Authority uh, Chief, Doug Hutchins, and Cal Fire Mendocino Unit Chief, um, Greg Gonzalez. And um, is it Greg? Yeah. That's close enough, sorry, George. <laughs> George, I'm sorry. And then we have Scott Craddy, the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council Executive Director. And I'd like to bring Scott in now to talk a little bit about well, one thing I, I wanted to ask you as a, a lead-in is, does the Calpella area have a fire safe council? Um, I don't believe it does. Um, and that's a, you know, a, a good thing to get to. Uh, you know, Mendocino County is doing extraordinarily well. Uh, we have a, a lot more neighborhood fire safe councils than a lot of areas. We are somewhere around the neighborhood of 41 and we need probably nine or 10 times that many. Every neighborhood should have, um, a, every neighborhood in the wildland interface should uh, get together once and think about fire and talk about it and have their neighborhood plan and see who's vulnerable in their neighborhood uh, and spend a weekend helping them out. Uh, so there's just a, you know, there's there's only so much we can do with grants. There's so many grants that are going to come forever, you know, uh, and they're going to come periodically and then they go. But if your neighborhood is engaged and activated, you can do as much uh, and you can do it regularly and, and you can maintain it. And that that's what's important. So, uh, you know, if you're not part of a neighborhood fire safe council, um, think about starting one. It's super easy. It's a low bar. You start with a few neighbors and um, start talking and invite the ones around you and, and um, just sort of keep keep spreading it. Well, and they have the the Mendocino County overarching umbrella fire safe council as a resource. I mean, yeah, so they're, you're there to help and guide these neighborhood 
Fire yeah, as much, as much as we can. We're uh, incredibly small. I'm actually this morning bringing on board a brand new AmeriCorps Grizzly Corps person who's going to be focusing in part on helping us uh, organize more neighborhood councils. So we have a, a brand new resource. We're literally onboarding once I get off this program uh, to, to help with that further. But um, just to get started, people can go to our website, which is firesafemendocino.org. Um, and maybe we'll talk about some of this later, but there's a first tab is safeguard your home which uh, gives a step-by-step -step process for home hardening and creating defensible space uh, in little video bites. Um, and then the next tab, the tab just to the right of that is prepare your neighborhood. Uh, and it's got a map of the existing neighborhood fire safe councils in the county. So you, you can see if there's one near you and then it's got a how to start one if there's not one near you. Um, so. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a lot of resources there to, to get you going. Well, what's the difference between home hardening and defensible space? And, uh, probably the fire chiefs can do this better than I, but I'll just delve in a little bit. They, they fit together. Um, the, the way we define it, at least home hardening is starting from your home and working outward, taking the, the most vulnerable parts and, um, and uh, making them as fire resistant as possible. Um, so home hardening sort of starts with your roof because it's the biggest exposed space on your home uh, and making sure that's as fire safe as possible uh, and sort of moves out uh, through your, uh, and next covers the vents and the E and vents and, and vents and E's openings where flames, the, those spotting embers that are coming ahead of a fire can get into your home and catch a fire. And then the next step in home harding is defensible space, which is a whole piece of itself, which is uh, clearing the vegetation and flammable things from around your home. So it's starting at the home. Uh, and the current guideline is making sure the first five feet around your home have, as to the extent possible, nothing flammable. Because uh, that's the space where embers are going to come in. They're going to catch the side of your home. They're going to bank along the home. So to the extent the, the first five feet around your home and the first six inches from the ground up on your home don't have anything those embers can ignite, uh, the better chance your home is going to have of surviving if there's a, a fire in the neighborhood. Uh, and then it, you sort of go out from there. The guideline is 100 feet. You basically, uh, for the next 30 feet, you try to make it lean and green and make sure things are uh, spaced uh, and healthy and maintained and um, spread apart so that if one thing happens to catch the fire, there's nothing right next to it for it to catch. Uh, and you sort of continue that thinning out uh, for 100 feet around your home with the notion being that, um, you know, you sort of sit and look around your home and if there's, um, imagine there's flame coming towards it and you want to make sure that you starve that flame as it gets near your house, that, uh, that things get lower and lower, that it drops down to the ground, that there's nothing for it to continue it towards your, towards your structure. Um, and for if you if for people who want to just get started in that, um, I'll point to one other thing in the website. Uh, if you go to news and events tab and click on news, uh, the latest thing under there is a brand new brochure we just produced in conjunction with the California Fire Safe Council called the Beginner's Guide to Home Hardening. 
Uh, it was produced for an event that actually happened out in Calpella a couple of weeks ago and, um, and in, a, in a home that did not survive the fire, amazingly enough. Um, and uh, But it is the Be Beginner's Guide. It basically orients you. It's a brochure that um, says, you know, step outside your door uh, and how to start looking around your home and thinking about creating defensible space and doing home hardening. Uh, so it's a sort of a checklist if you haven't thought about it before for getting going. Um, Jana Valakovic from the UC, who was, was with us at that event, uh, had a kind of a striking, uh, a striking uh, way of thinking about it. She started off by saying, you know, imagine you've got a box of stick matches in your hand. Uh, step out your front door light one and toss it in your imagination and if you can do that without worrying then you're in a you've got a good start for your defensible space if there's something around your home that you could toss a stick match and you'd think oh my that would be a problem then you don't have defensible space and you need to you know because that's that's what it's those stick matches landing around your home are just like those embers that were coming in and spotting ahead of that fire in Calpella and you need to have your home ready to resist them and that's probably enough for me <laughs> do, do either of the chiefs have anything to add to the subject of home hardening and defensible space chief Hutchinson uh, yeah okay thanks chief Gonzalez yeah uh, Mr. Craddy's absolutely correct. I mean, home hardening really kind of refers more to the construction features of the home. Um, you know, one of the vulnerable places we also see it are decks and fences, where those uh, connect directly to the home and kind of a lot of times leave some gaps and things for those embers that we're talking about to get into. So the home hardening really kind of refers more to the, the construction features. And then we move into the defensible space and one of the things we always try to remind people too, when we start talking about defensible space and we talk about 30 feet and 100 feet and people think that they have to have this barren landscape out there. And what I always try to tell people is, no, imagine a park. Okay, even if you have trees and things like that, imagine you want it to be park-like. You want to be able to walk under those trees, meaning they're limbed up at least six feet so that there's no ladder fuels. You want them well-spaced so there's lots of good sunlight that's reaching the ground, everything's mowed down. So it should look like someplace you want to have a picnic. Now, the other factor, though, and one that obviously we have to deal with a lot in this county and a lot of counties is topography. It's a lot easier to do this, let's face it, on flat ground than if you're sitting on the side of a hillside. And so one of the things we always tell people, too, is that if you're on a hillside or you have those topographical features to worry about, you may have to actually increase that spacing or, you know, go farther out. You know, if you're on a steep slope, you may have to go 300 feet down rather than just 100 feet because that's going to affect how the fire behaves as it comes up towards your residence. So, you know, there's there's a lot of great information I know on the uh, Fire Safe Council's website. Uh, you know, CAL FIRE obviously has a ton of information on their website, and we're always available to go out and do inspections and give advice to people if they just want to call our office and have us come take a look and give some recommendations. Well, this might be sort of a Monday morning quarterbacking kind of question, but, you know, the western sorry, the eastern side of this uh, perimeter of the fire is along, looks like to me, the Shakota Trail, which is a popular hiking trail along the edge of Lake Mendocino. And I, I was there only a few weeks ago and I was noticing so many uh, dead trees. I was thinking this is fuel for a huge fire down here. 
And uh, I thought, who is responsible? Is it the Army Corps of Engineers for keeping this, uh, uh, you know, keeping this area more or less clear of so much debris? And the reason I bring this up is, is it's connected to defensible space that's right adjacent to some of these homes that I imagine were didn't survive the fire. So <laughs> these people are living um, on the edge of land that is federally managed by the Army Corps of Engineers. So I just wonder if any of you know anything about that, about about keeping that area clear. It's um, yeah, of debris that's so flammable. I'll start it out. I, I know under the Public Resources Code of Defensible Spacing, that specifically speaks to um, areas or properties where there's an inhabited structure. So if it's open land, that does not apply. And I would also, uh, Chief Hutchinson said it extremely well, um, the Public Resources Code for Defensible Spacing is the minimums. And I'm sure uh, Mr. Crowdy can jump in on this. So five feet is great, but if you get six feet or seven feet um, of um, maintained cleared perimeter around your structure, that's even better. Or 100 feet's great, but if you get 120, even better. And that's all 100% dependent on the landscape and the topography. If there's any hills, any cut banks or anything like that, you do have to increase it. And obviously, for to tie it back into your question, um, the, it, it only applies to properties with inhabitable structures, and people can only go to their property line. Uh, the rest of it is uh, on a voluntary approach per the landowner. Right. All right, we're going to take calls in a couple of minutes, uh, questions uh, about the Hopkins fire specifically, or fire prevention, home hardening, defensible space. Um, so let's see. Um, yesterday... Oh, sorry. Somebody just just jump in quickly on that. So, you know, uh, what Chief Hutchinson said about, you know, if you're on a slope and that that is in the brochure as well. Absolutely true. All of these properties uh, were uh, some of the properties I know were just next to the sort of steep slope down to the lake. Um, and I had a conversation with someone on one of them, you know, about just sort of sitting at their property uh, this year during the uh, the end of the, the, the snowstorm we had and listening to all the trees coming down on the slope just below them. So there is lots of down vegetation out there. And, you know, uh, one of the problems is there's just not enough resources to clean up all the vegetation, every place, there never will be, which, you know, just leads me back around again to the, the do something. Uh, if you live in a wildland interface, uh, you live in a in an area, you've, you've moved into an area that burns, uh, historically it burns, it's that, that kind of way of nature in the place you live. And you can't, you know, wait until the, the weekend before fire season to, to start building defensible space around your home. It's a long and a complex process. Uh, it's going to take a fair lot of work to be ready to have your home have the best chance of surviving when that fire comes along. Um, so you need to get started. And as Chief Gonzalez said, you just, you keep, you know, you keep building on it and get as far into that perimeter as you can and have it thinned out and park-like, and you start working on those structural elements of your home and make sure your vents are, uh, you know, are uh, like eighth inch 
potentially vents so sparks can't get into and under your home. Uh, and then there's the decks, and then there's the windows, and then there's the eaves, and then there's the siding, and there's all the, all those components are things you need to sort of think about and think through and think through in the context of your particular landscape. Um, so it seems overwhelming, but you do a little bit every weekend. You know, the, the key is to just get going on it. Mm-hmm. Yesterday at the um, well, are there any calls, Alicia? First of all, <laughs> not yet, but we'll go ahead and give that number one more time. If you have a call for questions, it's 707 895 2448. That's 895 2448, and the lines are open. Oh, we do have a call. Okay, let's hear the caller's question. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Caller, you are live on the air. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask about the point of origin, and I know it's a little early for this fire, but we also had a, another fire um, about a month ago. Um, it uh, looked like the point of origin was near a riverbed. It ended up heading towards Black Park Trail um, on also some pretty steep terrain uh, with occupied homes. Uh, along its path, which congratulations we got on that. You guys got on that really quick. Good job. But uh, can we find out how these uh, fires are starting, and is it is it just along these, uh, or not just, but along these creek beds seem to be pretty prevalent? Do we need to have uh, maybe the game warden walk in these uh, areas uh, during the um, high fire danger time? And that's my question. Thanks. That's a great question. What what do we know so far about the lo- the where the fire started and how it started? I, I could start out and then uh, Chief Hutchinson can jump in um, as he sees fit. Uh, so far, um, it is under investigation very, very, very early on to go in any particular direction. Um, and it's um, unknown if it's related to the other fire. Uh, that they're speaking about um, in the creek bed or in the drainage area. But it, it essentially, um, all aspects will be taken a, a look at. No stone will remain unturned. Um, every investigation is investigated to the fullest ability, and we work with the local authorities, and we work with the district attorney's office on a daily basis. So um, it, it's very early on. The, the concentration has been and will be the fire suppression and the safety of personnel. And then we transition um, right after that simultaneously into the, into fire investigation. Uh, Chief, did you want to add anything? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so uh, just kind of piggybacking on what Chief Gonzalez said, um, one of our battalion chiefs, Justin Buckingham, has been out there. He was actually out there the first day on the fire as a division supervisor and then uh, transitioned into investigative mode because just for mutual aid to Redwood Valley, Calpella, because they don't have an, their own on-staff investigator. Uh, Chief Buckingham is actually quite a well-respected and pretty good investigator because we do get a lot of small fires here in the Ukiah Valley area. So unfortunately, he gets a lot of experience, but he's spent the last two days out there uh, working the area. I know he's had some assistance from CAL FIRE investigators as well. Uh, like Chief Gonzalez said, it's really too early to start pointing to anything. Uh, it, fire investigation is a, an act of ruling things out, not kind of 
saying we think it's this it's you rule everything out until you're left with only one possibility and then that becomes where you focus your attention because they have to follow the, a really good scientific method otherwise if it does turn out to be a crime or an alleged crime they're going to get hammered in court so these guys are really truly professional at what they do they're very thorough they take their time um and so hopefully they'll be able to determine a cause but wild and fires can be tricky because a lot of times any evidence is destroyed in the fire and so this was a very hot intense burning fire i was out there yesterday i didn't go to the actual point of origin but i saw kind of the base of where it started and that area really burned heavily so a lot of the indicators that would normally be on a slower lower burning fire are probably not going to be there so that can make the investigator's job more difficult but they are working on it um, it just takes time yeah well that's always been to me the miracle of fire investigation is it's a burn how do you how do you figure that out but the point of origin is that not uh, was it on private property or um, open space? Is, can you tell us that much yet? I'm not sure if they've actually determined the land ownership for the point of origin. Uh, they're still looking at the entire area. And, you know, he's out there again today, so I haven't had a chance to tie in with him to see, you know, if there have been any new developments or not. All right. I, I would say they established a good general origin area, which is adjacent to the front street where Chief Hutchinson was, uh, but no point of origin yet. So it's still a general area. They know approximately, but not specifically. And um, Chief Hutchinson's correct. Um, I ran into his battalion chief on just about every street during the fire. And then the next day, uh, yesterday, Monday, he had transitioned into investigative mode. So uh, Justin's been on all aspects of the fire, top, bottom, left, and right. Thank you. Sounds like we have more calls. Uh, you Lisa. bet. Yep, the phones are ringing off the hook, so let's take our next call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. And more calls. Uh, you bet. Yep, the phones are ringing off the hook. Oh, please turn your radio off, caller. Good morning, caller. And more calls. Hello? Hello. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I live in a yurt that has masonite siding, and I it's kind of old. I'm not sure how old, maybe 20 years or more than that, maybe 25 years old. And I am wondering if anyone has any idea how flammable that siding is, and I'm particularly curious about it about that because there are acorn woodpecker holes in the siding and I'm wondering about them, the likelihood of them uh, trapping embers and, and the siding igniting. Good question. Masonite siding, how flammable is that? And what about the woodpecker holes? <laughs> Who could take that question? I'll, I'll start it out. If chief, go ahead, Chief. I was say, I'll take a swing at it. Um, I'm not a UL engineer, an underwriter's laboratory engineer, but um, it sounds like, you know, at 20 years, it sounds like the siding's starting to deteriorate. And anytime we see uh, either bug damage or animal damage, like from the woodpeckers that starts to open that up, uh, we get concerned because even if there was some outer coat protection to it, the fact that there's now a pathway into the interior, um, yeah, maybe embers could get in there, whether they would be able to sustain combustion in there or not. Like I said, I'm not an engineer, but it sounds like it you know, has some damage that needs to be addressed. 
Any other Maybe thoughts? I should experimentally light a, light a match and see what happens. <laughs> um, no, only in your imagination. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, uh, to prevent acorn woodpeckers getting to the siding and making more holes than they already have, I have bird netting over the house in some spots, and I'm wondering how flammable that is. Who would like to? I, I'm assuming it's a plastic type of material. Yes. Any petrochemical in it, something like that. Extremely flammable. Um, I'll give you a quick story. Um, in 2015, I was downtown Middletown during the Valley Fire. That was my area, and I personally observed a plastic uh, recyclable trash can melt into a liquid format. Then it caught fire after it started off-gassing, and it went from yard to yard to yard to fence to fence to fence to house to house to house. So anything that isn't concrete, rock, uh, cement is flammable. Yeah. Okay. Mean it went from house to house to house. After after the gar the plastic garbage can melted, I'm trying to imagine what you're describing. So, uh, for example, the blue recyclable trash can with the heat started to melt downtown Middletown. Um, and then after it started to melt, it started to off-gas, and it liquefied. So it was kind of like um, a little trail of gas, kind of. And oh. it was it downhill, and I watched it go from a neighbor's yard to the next neighbor's yard to the next neighbor's yard. It caught the fence, and then the uh, fencing uh, through that whole neighborhood caught fire, and then house to house to house. So anything, the concrete, the rock, anything like that, the hardy board, and um, Mr. Craddy can speak to the hardy board and the defensible spacing, but all that is the key factor. And just like Chief Hutchinson said earlier, anytime you have a breach of any of that, it's time to start looking, updating, renewing, because that is allowing a direct hit to the inside of the structure. So anytime you start to see the cracks, any daylight, any sunlight, good indicator, time to upgrade and um, add new uh, preventative measures. Great. All right. Thanks, Thanks caller. Mm -hmm. We have another one? We sure do. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yes, good morning. Thank you. Um, I've got a question about vacant lots. Many times in the county there's parcels adjacent to you where you can't clear your 100-foot defensible space. Maybe it's an out-of-area owner. And I know the county recently uh, approved an abatement ordinance um, uh, or a nuisance ordinance, I guess is what it is. And I'd like to have you talk about that because we understand that there's now a process that somebody that isn't clearing their parcel uh, could be um, made to clear it one way or the other. And uh, in Brook Trails in particular, this is a problem, but it's, it's all through the county. So appreciate hearing about that. Scott, are you the person to... Um, I can address it a little bit. Um, so there is a new county um, fire hazard and rubbish abatement ordinance, and that's kind of step one in a long process. There's an ordinance now uh, that provides uh, kind of a more uh, central mechanism uh, for doing that, and um, CAL FIRE also has some some authority to uh, for for within the hundred or within defensible space area. Uh, which it sounds like that's not what you're talking about here. You're talking about vacant lots. Um, the rubbish abatement ordinance actually is primarily for within 100 feet of structures. Um, so if it's outside of that, it won't help. 
Uh, but the other problem at the moment is that, again, it's just sort of step one. There's an ordinance now, uh, but there's no funding to enforce the ordinance yet, and there's no procedure for enforcing it yet, uh, nor any staff. So there's a few more steps that need to happen before there's actually something that's actionable around the ordinance. It's a great first step. Um, the I can tell you uh, the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council worked with the county to prepare a grant that's pending at the moment. Uh, we There was some action on it just like two weeks ago, so that may be something we'll know about soon. Uh, we have a grant in process to try to um, staff an enforcement process. Uh, that would be essentially kind of a part-time pseudo-fire marshal that we would hire that would be just doing that and working with neighborhood fire safe councils to help them um, figure out how to do assessments and then hand them off to a professional to look at what uh, what things would be actionable. Um, our intent, if that is what ends up going forward, uh, is that it would initially be just an educational process. So for the for the first large part of it, for the first year or so, we would be issuing advisories about things that look like they would qualify for abatement, but just, you know, trying to educate people about what they need to do uh, before moving on to any kind of actual enforcement process. Um, so, um, you know, again, there's a, a lot of... There's, so many things that need work uh, and only so many resources and we're, we're inching our way towards as many of them as possible as quickly as possible but um, having a, an enforceable ordinance is still a, a few steps down the road. Chief Hutchison did you want to add something? To, somehow I got the sense that you had something. Yeah, yeah Mr. Craddy is absolutely correct. Um, this is just the first step in thing and as Chief Gonzalez said earlier you know, the public resource codes as they're currently written really only apply to properties with structures. And so the vacant lots is an issue that we struggle with constantly. I know in my jurisdiction and all jurisdictions, I dealt with it in other counties where I worked before I came here. Um, and, and the caller's right, it kind of runs the gamut. Sometimes it's out of area owners, uh, sometimes it's just vacant land and there really aren't good, a lot of good rules on the books for dealing with that. So the Nuisance is a good start, uh, some teeth to go through, but then the issue we have is who's going to do the work. Um, you know, most of the fire agencies in Mendocino County are volunteer. Um, they're under-resourced. I, I would say we're under-resourced as a paid staff. And so, uh, you know, it comes down to who's going to actually do the work. And one of the things we encounter a lot of times, too, is that some of these properties are owned by people that can't afford to do that work. And even if they can't afford to do the work, finding good contractors aren't there. So it's, as Mr. Craddy was pointing out, there's just a lot of moving parts to this. It seems like a simple solution to just order somebody to clean up their property and things like that. But sometimes it's just not that easy. But it is something that's definitely on everybody's radar because, you know, this time of year, we probably get five or six phone calls a day in the office wanting to talk to our prevention officer about these properties and what can they do and a dead tree here and, and things like that. And so it's it's a countywide problem that we're looking at, but right now we don't have all the solutions, unfortunately. All right. Thank you for that. We think we have more callers. We sure do. Let me see if this caller is still on the line. Hey, caller, you're live Hello. on the air. Hello. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, my question is a, a prevention uh, issue. I'm thinking about uh, non-flammable shutters over the windows to keep 
the radiant heat of the fire from igniting curtains and so forth. Would you think that's a very uh, important thing, or is that would just be fringe? You'd be in a world of hurt already if it got got to that point. Comments on that? Um, I'll jump in before handing it off. It's really contextual. Um, if you are in an area where, you know, if you're in an area where you have close structural neighbors, other homes are close to you, uh, then the most dangerous thing to your home is the home next to you, most likely. Um, and in that context, if you're particularly near a neighbor, a non-flammable shutter, uh, like on windows near uh, that are within 20 or 30 feet or 40 feet, someplace where radiant heat is going to be an issue of an intense possible heat source, like a neighboring house, can be a good idea. Um, if you're out in any more open lot uh, in the wildland interface, um, then you know your defensible space and making sure there's not an intense heat source near enough to your house by creating your defensible space is probably a better bet than investing uh, in those shutters. You know, if you're in an area where you can control where there's going to be sources of radiant heat close enough to your home because you can control that 100 so feet around your property. Firewood, um, you might want it, but otherwise you're just better off clearing it. Right. Thank right. you. Any uh, Chief Hutchison or Gonzalez have anything to add to the shutter question? No. All right. Do we have any other callers? We sure do. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So I'm in a rural residential neighborhood, and I know that this applies, has application, this question will have application outside of rural residential, but what can be done about meth, meth, methamphetamine labs related to causing wild wildland fires? <laughs> Who would like to take that one? So um, that is definitely a law enforcement issue, um, and that's where uh, that originates. Anything that is a threat to a wildland fire, uh, so on and so forth, really it, it doesn't change the process or the response of, of emergency personnel. It, it is primarily a law enforcement issue. Um, there is a lot of those types of fires in this county there's a lot of generator fires there's a lot of um above ground wiring uh fires uh, that do occur from nefarious activities throughout the county uh primarily law enforcement and i think with time uh within uh, certain areas uh, districts may have local ordinances to ban some of that type of operating stuff but the primary mission would still uh, lie within the law enforcement world right thank you any more calls uh, the lines are clear now but the phone number to call if you have a question is 707-895-2448 that's 895-2448 Thanks. I have a question. Yesterday, uh, the, I was listening to the debriefing, and uh, I think it was you, Chief Gonzalez, uh, mentioned that you had assistance from, you know, Willits and Fort Bragg uh, fired fire departments, and probation was one on your list. And I was curious what role probation might have had in the early response to the fire. 
I believe it's a it's a multi list with the sheriff's department as far as the probation. But I know on the CDCR side, uh, we still have some inmate uh, firefighters, and we mm-hmm. do have corrections that responded with them, um, and that is a, a normal occurrence for us. Okay, but yeah, everybody in the county was asked to respond. Uh, all response agencies we had all law enforcement state local government uh, all fire agencies participated that were available um, we're just now getting into fire season for our local area and if it, it's anything like the past uh, we still have several months of this type of weather and these types of fires occurring mm-hmm. and then another thing that was mentioned i thought was interesting was WIA. And it's, I looked it up. It stands for Wire Emergency Alert. I, and uh, I wonder if, if one of the chiefs could describe that. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a lot of different tools now for emergency management as far as alerting the public. And obviously, you know, with the, the several of the mega fires and just the large scale fires we've seen over the last few years, this has become a really hot topic for people. Um, yeah, the basic ones start with your Nixels and your, you know, Ready Mendocino type notifications that people have to sign up for. And those are great, but they are limited by people have to sign up for them. And so if people have not signed up for them, then when there's an emergency, they may or may not get the message. The WIA, the Wireless Emergency Alert System, is a federal system that emergency managers can use. They basically can draw a geofence around an area and send that alert and it will alert any cell phone in the area whether it's signed up for it or not whether it's the right area code or not so this way people staying at a motel or traveling through the area will actually get the alert so that's why they use that in fast moving situations where they have to go to a broad spectrum of people not just a reverse 911 because they want to make sure that they capture everybody and reverse 911 only works a lot of times with landlines. They are now getting it to work with the cell phones and, and such. But again, it's only the registered numbers. So, you know, the emergency managers have to have a huge set of tools that unfortunately all kind of have their limitations. But, you know, at least they've got a bunch of tools in their box to try to use. And a lot of times they'll use multiple ones to try to make sure that they reach the broadest number of people possible in the area. That's an amazing resource. Um, so it sounds like we have a caller. Alicia? Yep. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, I have a question regarding the sort of uh, authoritative bureaucratic conflict between when I have Cal Fire come out and tell me to take out all these dead furs, take out all these busted off oaks at 18 inches of snow in my yard last winter, and uh, just trees came down everywhere. And, but I can't, I have excavators, I have various pieces of equipment, I have a smoke management plan for burning them, but Fish and Wildlife comes out and says, don't disturb any duff on the forest floor. Don't disturb, don't drive across that dry wash, even though it's a class three, you know, we don't want to see a track go across it. And it basically is impossible for me to do any kind of significant uh, fuel load reduction and not break Fish and Wildlife's rules, even though Cal Fire's telling me to do it. What do I do? 
That's a great question. And uh, what I'd suggest is giving us a call. We can go out there. We can meet with Fish and Wildlife to see specifically for your property because it sounds like you have a low-lying area within, a, did you say a Class 2 or Class 3 waterway? Well, I mean, you know, that's a matter of interpretation. I've had people tell me they're Class 2s, Class 3s. To me, they're all Class 3s because there's no water and any real riparian vegetation that's significantly different than the vegetation that's on the rises as opposed to the low spots. But, you know, there's a combination. It's a little 45-acre piece, but it's got a little bit, a lot of north slopes, so it's got a little bit of, you know, of everything on it. A few springs here and there, and it's just, you know, a bureaucratic nightmare. No, I agree with you. I'm sorry that that's occurring. Here's what I'd suggest. Give us a call. We could go out there. We can meet with Fish and Wildlife. But essentially, if if they're saying don't disturb the bottom floor, then that's when a good opportunity to trim the trees up, uh, the limbs up 10 feet, uh, um, the continuity of the system, the continuity of the area, start uh, reducing as much as we can without disturbing the ground type of stuff that they suggested. And uh, with that being said, um, it, I'd really have to be there, but it, we probably have some good options on some thinning and other uh, aspects uh, as far as the well, LE100 process. I want to process. get to a, a fur that's, say, 28 inches at the base, and you know, or 28 inches at chest height, right? And to be able to deal with that tree, you aren't going to be able to do that without equipment. I mean, we're talking totally dead trees, hundreds of them. And, and a lot of uh, tops of oak trees that broke off and hung up in the little slower story trees in the snow. So it's stuff that has, requires equipment to move. There's no way you can do any sort of significant fuel load reduction of completely dead stuff if you do not take tracked equipment in there. It's steep hills. There's no way you can do it by hand. It just can't be done. And so it's either we leave it with all that, you know, all that debris everywhere, or we have to be able to run equipment in there. Yeah. So how do these uh, agencies uh, work together then, uh, especially if their missions in, in, at, at some level are incompatible with each other? I think this is a good opportunity for us to meet up at the property and see if we could get yeah. a variance for that property for this specific measure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for your call. We only have a few minutes left, so I think uh, we'll just uh, wind, wind up. I'd like to ask each of uh, my guests to... Uh, if they have any last comments, um, Chief, we'll start with Chief Gonzalez from CAL FIRE. Quickly, we just have a couple minutes left. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you have any wildfire prevention uh, questions, you could call us at any station or visit our website, readyforwildfire.org. Thank you. Chief Hutchison from the Ukiah Valley Fire District. Yeah, just like Chief Gonzalez said, thanks for having me on. Uh, we're happy to answer any questions at our district office here on South State Street. Uh, folks can call us if they have concerns, uh, and we just hope everybody takes some time to look around their property and do what they can. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here this morning. And Scott Craddy, Executive Director of the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to do. Be aware of what's available. I direct people again to our website, firesafemendocino.org. And quickly, we've got sort of three programs going on now. One that helps people potentially with roof replacement. Uh, if you have a wood shingle roof this is your opportunity to get rid of it so look at the website uh, we also have programs for 
um, income eligible seniors and handicapped persons to help with defensible space. So if you know people that can benefit from that, please get them registered. Uh, and finally, we can help you with chipping service. Uh, we have community chipping programs. It is again, a limited resource. So we can't go to every isolated place in the county and do it. But if you can organize enough neighbors to provide a day's worth of chipping, uh, we can help with that as well. So please take advantage of what's available to help you get the work done. Thank you, Scott. So you've been listening to Citizen U. I'm your host, Mari Roden. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.